Shalom, this is Rabbi Talmud Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you a commentary on Deuteronomy 26, 13, and 14. Every week we read from the Torah what's called the Confession of Tithes in Deuteronomy after we're admonished in obedience to God's command on the subject of tithing. Hmm, what is this? A confession used instead of the typical prayer of thanksgiving used in most religious institutions? Why? Why are these verses read before the tithe is collected? Is it to convict us, to pressure us, or is it just another formality of the synagogue? After all, this is from the quote-unquote old school, and some don't even really know what some of this means. So I'm going to explain today, uh, as God would help me, what the scripture means and why we use it. So let's take these verses line by line. But before we do that, let me explain something of the concept of this confession of tithes. Tithes were to be taken from the crops according to a three-year cycle as commanded by God. Every year, the first tithe went to the Levite. Today, this is the tithe taken for the synagogue in support of the maintenance of the building as well as the rabbi. We can't run a synagogue if people don't tithe. And just because people are away does not mean that tithes are not necessary. I submit to you that if everybody did that, uh, one day they might come back and the synagogue would be closed. And that's indeed what would happen without God's, uh, God's intervention, his sustenance, and uh, his people following his command. Now, this time in history, the Levite had no inheritance, and their role was administering and caring for the temple. And today, this is our rabbis, I'm a rabbi, my main role as well. Like the Levite, rabbis are not subsidized with a regular salary that's guaranteed by a committee as a pastor or priest is in other religions. During the first and second years, a second tithe was taken, which was sanctified and had to be eaten in Jerusalem. This tithe was to be enjoyed by the family. During the third year, instead of the second tithe, the tithe of the poor, or ma'asarani, was taken in addition to the annual tithe to the Levites. This third-year tithe had and has a special status because it symbolizes the generosity, the kindness, the chesed in Hebrew, that's supposed to be paramount in the Jewish mind, as well as concern for the poor or the needy. You know, there are times some of us are poor in one aspect or another, and it's important for us to sensitize ourselves to the needs of our own people, as well as those who are overtly poor. However, we know that we'll never get rid of all the poor until Yeshua returns because he tells us that the poor will always be with us. Now, it's sort of like the commercials you see to solicit help for starving children overseas. Yes, they have a need, but we have many homeless and starving children in our own country that are not even acknowledged. As a matter of fact, I had a conversation with one of the top advocates for homeless children in Citrus County, and he told me that one of the biggest problems in getting anything done is that the school board and other county officials deny that there are any homeless children in the county. They're a little bit better about that now. We have to look inward and acknowledge our own problems before we spend our resources elsewhere. Now, by the day before Pesach of the year after the three-year cycle, the head of the home was to make sure that all the tithes were delivered to the proper destination. Then on the last day of Pesach, of the fourth and seventh years, this confession was recited preferably at the temple, but was sometimes recited in the home. 
And this is one reason it's recited sometimes in the synagogues. We should at least do this mentally as we give our tithes. This is a time when we're all together and are synchronized by the order of service and our love for Yahweh. I don't run a formal tithe collection in our synagogue now because I believe that this is between the individual and God and I don't want anybody to feel any pressure or coercion. They either follow the command of God or they don't. So why are these passages called a confession when there's no mention of sin? The sages say that had Israel not worshipped the golden calf, this service would have been reserved for the firstborn, and every Jewish home could have been a sacred temple. But because of this sin, it was necessary to remove the tithes from the home and give them to the Kohanim and the Levites. So for this, we confess. With this background, we can now better understand this confession. Let's take it line by line. Yavi is speaking here, by the way. This is 26.12. When you finish tithing every tithe of your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, to the proselyte, to the orphan, and to the widow, and they shall eat in your cities and be satisfied. Then you shall say before Hashem your God, I have removed the holy things from the house. Now this was a solemn declaration before God that nothing was to be devoted to the divine service that had been secretly reserved for personal use. We have a tendency to be stingy, don't we? Do we give our best every day in all we do? Let's take a few examples that might not be so obvious. When giving items from your home to charities, do you make sure they're clean and in good repair? Or do you throw in some of the junk you happen to run across in the process of cleaning out your home? When the food drives are conducted at various times during the year, do you donate things that cannot be eaten alone of themselves, like packages of yeast or pudding mix that need eggs and milk? How about when you're preparing something for you and your spouse that's exactly the same food? I've used this example before. Let's say ice cream with chocolate sauce. Do you take the one that has the most sauce? Do you take the biggest piece of cake? Or hide your favorite candy? You see where I'm going with this? We need to become sensitive to these seemingly simple but realistic infractions when it comes to giving and see if we are putting ourselves first or our love of God and Torah. Now the verse continues. I've also given it to the Levite, the proselyte, to the orphan, and to the widow, according to whatever commandment you commanded me. Now this is in reference to the previous command God had given concerning these tithes and their designated recipients. It goes on. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, and I have not forgotten. Right giving is done within the context of a whole life of obedience, as I just mentioned. We must become so integrated with Torah that it is as instinctive as self-preservation. This is actually an enlightening and solemn exercise in learning and practicing Torah. Since teaching on self-nullification, I, I did uh, some time ago, I was convicted and driven to begin this introspective experience of examining the minute details and decisions in my everyday life. I was humbled and ashamed of some of the things I did without knowing or thinking. This is a lifelong transformation. Like the butterfly emerging from the cocoon, it is a slow, painful process with a beautiful outcome if we persevere. However, we can't practice change if we don't know what changes are necessary, if we don't have a template from which to reconstruct ourselves. And we cannot do it in our own strength. 
We must ask Yahweh to reveal our painfully overt and covert flaws, that he may refine us to the point where we are more reflective of his ways than ours. Moving on. I have not eaten of it in my intense mourning. I did not consume it in a state of contamination, and I did not give it for the needs of the dead. Now, there's several interpretations of this phrase. The Kumash says this refers to the day of a close relative's death, when it was forbidden to eat at the second tithe, which was to be eaten in Jerusalem by the head of the house and his family after delivering it to the Levite priest. According to another commentary, it stated that right giving is not done superstitiously. Putting food in a grave with a dead body was a common Egyptian and Canaanite practice, which was not to be emulated by the Israelites. In yet another commentary, John Wesley, who was a learned Christian scholar, explains that in sorrow or grieving, that so much of the prophets were to be given away to the poor, but they were cheerfully eaten and feasted with them as they were commanded to do after they were delivered and consecrated by the Levites at the temple. The state of contamination refers to any common use for any other than that which is appointed, which would have been pollution for them. For the dead refers to the use of tithes for the funeral pomp of service or service for the Jews used to send provisions to feast with the nearest relations of the deceased person, and in that case, both the guests and the food were legally contaminated. Numbers 19, 11, and 14. Therefore, the use of these tithes in such cases had been a double fault. Both the defiling of sacred food and the employing these provisions upon sorrowful occasions, which by Yahweh's express command were to be eaten with rejoicing. Again, after they were delivered to the temple and consecrated by the Levites. Furthermore, the tithe could not be used to purchase shrouds or other needs for the dead person. Now, as a side note, think of people who, let's say, buy something for the building. There have been people who have come to uh, me and said that the purchase was considered as part of their tithe. Subsequently, they proportionally decreased their tithe to compensate for the cost. Now, this is the same principle. Someone may say to themselves, I need to tithe, but so and so really needs this, and I want to do a mitzvah. Is it justified in God's economy? Of course not. So be careful how you justify the redistribution of what God has commanded. A tithe is a tithe. 10% of your increase. An offering is anything besides that. Another interpretation for the phrase, I have not given it for the needs of the dead, is that we are not to waste our tithe on dead things or idols. As you know, idols are anything or anyone we put before God. Then we move on. I've hearkened to the voice of Hashem, my God. I've acted according to everything you commanded me. Here again is an affirmation more for the benefit of the individual, as a reminder more than anything else, that they have followed God's Torah and have not attempted to revise the instructions for distribution and amount of the tithes. Moving on again, gaze down from your holy abode, from the heavens, and bless your people, Israel, and the ground that you gave us, as you swore to our forefathers a land flowing with milk and honey. According to Rashi, this verse is the only exception to the rule that the word hashkafa, that means gazing, in scripture denotes careful examination to determine that punishment is appropriate. But when Jews give to the poor, the attribute of judgment is transformed into the attribute of mercy. Hachaim, 
commentator, comments that the two expressions, holy abode and heaven, refer to two kinds of blessings. The first is the spirit of purity that God infuses into people, and the second is the temporal blessing of prosperity. This also explains the latter reference to Israel in the ground. Another interpretation of the phrase, look down, is that after the solemn profession or confession of their obedience to God's commands, they're taught to pray for God's blessing, whereby they are instructed on how vain and ineffectual the prayers of the unrighteous or disobedient persons are. Finally, Moshe again exhorts the people to observe God's commands with all their heart and their soul, and to always think of Torah as fresh and exciting as the day it was given. I find it extremely humbling and exciting every time I study Torah because I'm always rewarded with a deeper understanding of Yahweh. And often I'm led into directions that I had no idea I was going. And I found a new truth. It's his time, his timing to give us knowledge and wisdom. I'm humbled because he reveals such intimate information of himself to such an unworthy person and excited because I was chosen before I chose him. I hope that you too feel this excitement and humility each time you read Torah and that it draws you like opposite magnetic poles to the point where you become echad with him, that means unified, if even for a short study session. If you study it enough, you will feel the transformation from an individual human organism to a fused creation with the creator. Shalom Bebrakas. If you have any questions, if there's anything you would like me to research and comment on, uh, any comments, please go to our, our website at rabdavis.org, and you can go under the link for Ask the Rabbi. We always also have a, a, a plethora of other teachings and sermons that you can uh, peruse and, and learn from, and I hope you find this site uh, a blessing. Thank you so much for listening.